you have a Bible, we're going to be reading um, Matthew 22, um, verses 34 through 40. Um, um, and that says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees had um, got together. One of them, an expert in law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and, all, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on to these two commandments. Thanks, Blair. So, one of my favorite uh, collection of verses, by the way. Um, Last gathering, we kicked off a series on our six community values, okay? If you weren't with us, uh, they were up on the screen. They're not going to be now, and that's fine. Uh, you can find them on our website or in the Microchurch Handbook that I was talking about earlier. They're all listed in there. Uh, today, we're going to explore our second community value, which is known by love. And what we mean by that is as a community of people devoted to Jesus and his kingdom, love must be our defining characteristic, and when people think about us, the first thing that should come to mind is love. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to answer these two questions. How does this value reflect a core value held by Jesus? It's not a value worth holding if it doesn't reflect Jesus's values. And two, what does this value look like lived out in our lives and in our faith community? So if you remember, last winter, we were about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, and we spent a number of gatherings exploring Jesus's somewhat controversial interpretation of the Torah. Okay, these are the, you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. You guys remember that? It's fun stuff. It's good stuff. Um, And if you recall from those conversations, the Torah is the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it is the core of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay? It's the most important part of, of the, the Israelites' scriptures. In the Torah, there are 613 commandments. Okay? You probably know the first 10, okay? but there's 613 total. And these commandments guide the Israelite people on how they should live as God's representatives to the world. On top of those 613 commandments, there are 1,500 more listed in the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinic teachings on the Torah that was compiled just before the time of Jesus. So as Jesus comes onto the scene, there are over 2,000 commandments that dictate the Jewish life. And inevitably, everyone is asking, okay, which of these are most important? Which ones do I really have to follow and which ones are not as big of a deal? The teachers of the Torah, the rabbis, the Pharisees, those sorts of people would have heated debates over this question. Which commandments are most important? Which are the greatest? Now, we have to understand the implications of this question because it's not simply a matter of taking a list of laws and ranking them from most important to least important. This question gets at the very core of what life is all about. And the reason I say that is because if, if the Torah is God's vision for life in his kingdom under his rule, which is what the Hebrew people thought of the Torah, 
And if the commands in the Torah detail the way that that life should be lived, then to sum up those commands is to sum up the meaning of life itself. So when this expert in the Torah asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, regardless of the man's motivations, which were were less than honest, the question that he is asking Jesus is, what is God's vision for human life? That is the question that Jesus is answering. This is a big deal, right? So how does Jesus respond? Well, he first quotes from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 5. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then, unprompted, he offers a second most important commandment from Leviticus 19. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes his answer by saying all of the Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, without these two commands, the other 2,111, as well as the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, fall apart. This is a huge statement that Jesus is making. The most fundamental purpose of our human existence is love. So let's break this down just a bit more. Look at the first commandment up on the screen here. So it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So love the Lord your God with all your heart. What does it mean to love with all your heart? Theologian uh, Robert Saucy writes the real identity of a person. You can put it up on the screen. The real identity of a person is the heart. The heart is where we think, feel, and will the activities of our life. These three functions are joined together in inseparable unity in the depths of the heart. For the ancient Jewish people, the heart is a metaphor for the source of one's emotions, desires, and motivations. The heart informs everything you do, think, and feel. The heart defines who you are. It's the core of your being. Well, this creates a challenge for us because we cannot easily change our heart. For many of us, our emotions, our desires, and our motivations feel like they are out of our control. And oftentimes, they are things that we are not proud of, things that we'd rather not be defined by. Yet Jesus says that this inner part of our being is central to life with God. And a fundamental part of the human journey is learning to rewire and reorient our heart towards the Father, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Next, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. Now, unfortunately, this word that's translated as soul, it's used hundreds of times in the Bible. And and unfortunately, what what we think of when we hear the word soul is not at all what, what the word means in the Bible. The Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. Okay, it's, it's often, or it's always translated as soul, I think. But our concept of soul comes primarily from the Greek philosopher Plato, who believed that we were fundamentally spiritual beings trapped inside a physical body. 
Okay? And so when we die, we are, we are finally freed from our physical body and we, we can truly be what we were made to be, which is spiritual beings. And we live like that for eternity. That is not what the Hebrew people had in mind when they said this word nephesh, what we translate as soul. Okay, this dualistic understanding of the human life has made its way into Western Christianity, yet it is not at all what the Bible teaches. When we read soul in our Bibles, it's referring to your whole being, which very much includes your physical body. So much so that in the Old Testament, when someone would die and there's this dead body on the ground, it's still called a nephesh, a soul. It's just a dead soul instead of a living soul. It doesn't stop being what it is. That, that is what it is. Okay, so, so, and, and there's, if you've ever heard of the Bible Project, there's a great video that goes into this a little bit more in depth. Um, just look up Nefesh or Soul Bible Project, and you'll find that video. You can learn more about that. But essentially what this line is getting at is that we are to love God with all of our personhood, with all of our bodies, with, with everything about us. We are to love God. Love God with all your soul. Finally, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. This obviously refers to our inner thoughts, but it also includes our understanding or the way that we see the world. Okay. Do do we have a worldview that is informed by the love of God? Do we see the world through the lens of God's love? That's what Jesus is getting at here. I mean, even when this world looks so void of love, do we believe that God's love will never fail? That is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your mind that we, or with, yeah, with all your mind that we see and think about the world through the lens of love, through God's love. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, love the Lord your God with all your soul and love the Lord your God with all your mind. Jesus's point here is not to distinguish between three different ways to love God, but simply to say that we are to love God with every ounce of our being. Hold nothing back when it comes to loving God. Every bit of you should be oriented towards loving God. With my words, love God. With my emotions, love God. With my thoughts and motivations, love God. With my talents and my passions, love God. With my money, how I make it and spend it and give it, love God. With my influence, love God. With my body and my health, love God. With all that you are and all that you have, right? We say this in weddings, love God. That is the point of this first command. Now, notice that the Pharisees did not ask for the two most important commandments. Okay, they just asked for one. I think most of them would have been behind this first one. But Jesus, as as he often does, shows us that there's more to the question. It's not as simple as they would like to think. And he offers a second most important command. That's because according to Jesus, these two commandments, it's not number one, number two, these two commandments are inseparable from one another. And in many ways, the first is lived out in the second. If you don't show love to your neighbor, the second command, then you can't be doing the first. And if you're not doing the first, loving God with every ounce of your being, it becomes very hard to authentically love your neighbor. They are inseparable. So Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke tells a similar story or, or possibly the same story. And the religious leaders ask a follow-up question to Jesus' answer here. They ask, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Does anyone know how Jesus responds? Parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That's where Jesus puts this parable in, this super, we've, most of us have heard it, even if you don't go to church, like you've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. When, when he is asked, who is my neighbor? He tells this story. And the question that they're asking, they're essentially saying, who do I have to love, right? If I have to love my neighbor, where can I draw the line? Okay, is the Roman soldier who's occupying our land, is, is he our neighbor? Is the Gentile immigrant who knows nothing of our customs and traditions and way of life, is, are they my neighbor? How about the tax collector that, betray, that betrayed our people? Surely he isn't our neighbor anymore, right? Don't you lose your status as neighbor after doing that sort of thing? Who is my neighbor? And unsurprisingly, Jesus doesn't answer this question. Instead, he tells a story. So I'm going to read this story for you. It'll be up on the screen. This is Luke... Um, I actually don't know what chapter this is, so I'm not going to say. 10? Luke 10. Thank you. It's up on the screen. Uh, Luke 10, verse 30. Uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, so we have an Israelite man, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. He's laying in the middle of the street, bleeding, dying, completely naked. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, his fellow Jewish man, certainly his neighbor, he passed by on the other side of the road. So to a Levite, when he came to, uh, to the man, the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road, he did the same thing as the priest. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, and the Samaritans were enemies of the Jewish people, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, just two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense he may have. And Jesus then says to the religious leaders who are questioning him, which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replies, the one who showed compassion to him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Okay, so who is my neighbor? And he says, be like the Samaritan, right? Your enemy who showed compassion to the man who was dying on the road. Now, we could spend hours talking about this parable, and I'm sure you've heard people talk about it before, but what I want us to notice is what this story is telling us about the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to when he says to love our neighbor, and how it is so antithetical to how we often think about love. One of my favorite biblical scholars, I already mentioned the Bible Project, is, is Tim Mackey, and he compares our cultural understanding of love to this. Anyone know what this is a picture of? If you put it up on the screen, super blurry. It's because it's really far away. Anyone know what that is? It's a, 
you, you don't raise your hand. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> a black hole. I appreciate you, you uh, showing me the respect of raising your hand. Uh, yelling at me is totally fine. Um, a black hole. Okay, this is Sagittarius A, which I've been told by Google, it's the only picture that we have of a black hole. Um, and it is the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So this is, you know, eventually, I guess we'll all get sucked up into that. That's, I, I think that's the way things are going. It's going to be <laughs> billions of years. Who knows? Um, something else will probably happen. I don't know. Uh, but what, what, what Tim Mackey s- says and what he means by this comparison is that when we say love, what we're often referring to is this feeling of self-gratifying consumption, Just like a black hole sucks in and consumes everything that is around it, our culture tells us that love is about consumption and desire. What am I getting out of this relationship? That defines how much love I'm going to put into it. So when I say uh, I love Sono Tacos, right? I just went Sono Taco on Friday. I love Sono Taco. What I mean by that is I want to consume their tacos, okay? It's, yeah, all of them. Uh, It's it's a totally self-focused feeling, and it says nothing about what I have to offer to Sono Taco, except maybe my money, which is completely dependent on whether or not I'm receiving tacos, okay? So it's a self-satisfying, self-gratifying consumption when I say that I love those tacos, But this way of thinking extends beyond our favorite foods. It's often how we talk, or at least our culture talks about our relationships. Okay, if I fall in love with someone, it's because I'm getting something from them, whether it is their presence or their body or a sense of worth or value because I'm with them. And for that reason, when those things go away, when we no longer enjoy the presence of a partner or a spouse, or when we no longer are attracted to them in the way that we once were, okay, we say we've fallen out of love. And our culture would say that is a perfectly valid reason for ending the relationship. Love is conditional on whether or not I am getting what I desire from the relationship. It is about consumption. This way of thinking about love has also crept into how we talk about God. Our relationship and our devotion to God is completely dependent on whether or not I am getting something from God, whether or not, whether it be emotions or feelings or reassurance. And if I am no longer receiving what I desire from the relationship, I say things like, well, God feels distant or I'm not being fed. So I I need to find new experiences, new content, whatever it might be. It's about consumption and our love is dependent on whether or not we're receiving what we desire. This is why it's so hard for us to imagine actually loving our neighbor. As Ariel was talking about before, she's not receiving much of anything from her neighbors, yet she still tries to show love to them because love is not about consumption. It's not about what you are receiving. It's not about what you are getting out of the relationship or out of the exchange. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is the way that the priests and the Levite are thinking about love. Why would I help this man? What am I getting out of it? And for them, it goes a step further. What might I lose by helping him? Okay, he could be dead. 
I could become unclean, which would affect my ability to, to fill my role as priest or Levite. Or worse, those robbers might come back and get me next because I stopped to help this man. For them, love is self-focused. It's dependent on what I am receiving or what's going to happen to me if I'm to show love in this case. But this is not the love that Jesus is talking about. Love, according to Jesus, is not a black hole. Instead, it is more like this. Does anyone know what this is? A spring, right? A spring, a wellspring. Okay, so this uh, is the spring that comes out of Lake Atasca in northern Minnesota. And it feeds, this is the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Okay, this is how it starts. And it goes on to give water to over 20 million people. Obviously, there's other rivers and stuff that, that come into it. But you get the point. It starts like this. So how is love like a wellspring? Well, a wellspring doesn't consume. A wellspring doesn't take for itself, but always pours out everything that it has received. Received. A wellspring doesn't have to store up or conserve water because it will always receive more from the source. And like a wellspring, the love that Jesus is calling us to never takes, but gives freely without asking for anything in return. And the one who loves in this way is not concerned with themselves because they know that the love they receive from the father will never run dry. They're connected to the source. This is the love of the Samaritan who puts himself at risk for an enemy who doesn't ask for anything in return, but gives freely and abundantly without concern for himself. Martin Luther King Jr. once said in a sermon on the Good Samaritan, this will be up on the screen. I imagine the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the Good Samaritan reversed this question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? This is a self-giving, others-focused love. It is the sort of love that we ought to be known by. So how do we step into this? I'm going to have uh, the team come up. And they're going to lead us in worship. But I'm just going to leave you with three quick points. The first being we, uh, we step into this by starting with receiving love from the source. Receiving love from the source. A wellspring can only flow freely because it is connected to the source. Okay, we must learn to receive love from the Father in order to be agents of love in the world. So how do we love our neighbor freely without any strings attached, without wanting anything in return? We're connected to the love of the Father. And there's no other way to do this than to spend time with the Father, to create space in your life to be with him just like any other relationship. Our relationship with God needs time and presence. God does not withhold his love for us, but he does not force it on us either. In order to be known by love, we must first receive love from God. The second uh, point here is to give and receive love within your faith community. You can take this if you'd like. In John chapter 13, Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. 
so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I always find it interesting that Jesus says the primary way that we are recognized as his disciples is not by our love for the world, but by our love for one another. There's no question that Jesus wants us to love all people, particularly those that are hard to love. But the greatest testimony to Jesus's transforming work in our life is the love that we show to one another right here in this room or, or in our microchurch or whatever it might be. Okay, that's how the world knows we're disciples, by the love that we show here. And, and you know, in our community, we're all about going out. We're sent. We want to love our neighbor, love those that are far from God. But we cannot forget, Jesus said we are known as his disciples by the love that we show to our community. And, then the, and so we are known by love. We must give and receive love within our faith community. And finally, uh, the last point here is to give love away freely in the world. Okay, according to Jesus, when, when people think about Christians, the first thing that should come to mind is radical, sacrificial, no strings attached to love. Okay, not judgmentalism, not critical, not isolated, not stingy, but loving. Okay, we have all these excuses on why we don't show love. Like, I don't have the time or they might ask me for more or it'll be awkward or they'll make me uncomfortable. They might return my Christmas card, right? When our focus is on ourselves, we hold back love. But if I'm already overflowing with the love that I've received from the Father and from my brothers and sisters in Christ, the people in this room, it's much easier to forget about myself and give love freely without expecting anything in return. So instead of asking the question of the Pharisees, if I love them, what will happen to me? We ask the question of the Samaritan. If I love them, what, if I do not love them, what will happen to them? In order to be known by love, we must give love freely to the world around us. So we're going to go into a time of worship. We're going to take communion together. And I just want you to spend these next 20 minutes or so uh, just receiving the love of the Father. Okay, if you got to sit, close your eyes, sing, read, write, whatever it is. This is a time here where we, we should receive the love of God because he is here and he wants to give it to each one of us fully and freely. All right, so let's do that now. Oh God, open our hearts now. May we become a people fragrant and saturated with love, the unforgettable love of God. We set aside our own agendas in favor of love's agenda and desire that the love of God may live and move within and among us, filling us so that excess pours out wherever we go. By love, Christ came into the earth. By love, Christ humbled himself to become human. By love, Christ preached God's kingdom. By love, Christ healed and fed multitudes. By love, Christ was led, a lamb to slaughter. By love, Christ absorbed within himself the wrongdoing of all people. By love, Christ shortened the distance between ourselves and God. By love, Christ absolved his tormentors. By love, Christ put death to rest. 
By love Christ rose up into glorified life. By love Christ commissioned the spreading of the good news of love. By love Christ reimagined humankind. By love Christ ascended into heaven promising to be with us always. By love Christ gave the Holy Spirit as our helper. The love of God became fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The love of God floods out over the earth, over his kingdom. The love of God is the new order, our paradigm for living. The love of God fills our hearts, changes our lives, remakes our beings. May love shatter us and rebuild us anew. May love encompass us and protect us. May love reform us from violence and power-seeking. May love make us compassionate. May love reorient our hearts and minds. May love teach us to walk in the new way, the beautiful way. May we be liberated from expectations placed on us by religions, societies, empires, cultures and delivered into love's hands, following love's direction, under love's authority, helpless but to fall under love's sway. In the loving name of Jesus Christ, amen. During the next couple songs, you may come to the table. As you take the bread and the cup, I invite you to reflect on God's self-giving, unceasing love for you displayed most evidently in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross.